You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. Don't stand just yet. I'm going to make some opening remarks and then we'll, we'll get into the... We'll, we'll read the text this morning. Genesis chapter 2... And um, if you're here last week, you'll probably recognize the passage of Scripture that we're reading today because we're going to read the same text that we were in last Sunday morning for Father's Day. And uh, I, I know that sometimes it gets to be redundant, and, um, but I'm not sure how anyone can criticize uh, repeating sections of the Bible, <laughs> I mean, there's so much here. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, no preacher that I know can mind the depths of a passage in one message. And uh, we could be in Genesis 2 for weeks and weeks and really probably never get really all of it. But last week, there were some points I made from the text about Father's Day. And, and so this week, I'm going to come at it from a little bit of, of a different angle. But last week, we looked at marks of a great father. And really, there is no better example for dads, for fathers, than our Heavenly Father. And he is the prime example. He is the one that we should be striving to be like. But today's message is from, the, from a, the opposite angle. For a person to be a father, then there has to be a child. There has to be a son. There has to be a daughter. So while we get a glimpse of God as the ideal father here in this passage, at the same time, we get to see what God expects from Adam as the ideal son. Because really, Adam, we saw last week how Adam is called God's son, and it's not a physical relationship, but God did breathe into Adam the breath of life, and Adam in Luke 13 is called his son. So I want to approach this text then today from the other angle, and not looking at it like the father as God, but as Adam the son. And I believe that our situation, of course, is different than Adam's, and that uh, we have to deal with sin, but I think it's good for us to go here and see what God expects from his children when there's no hindrances. This is exactly the way that God wants his relationship with his children to be, and we're all, we can be God's children. Now, we're not, I don't subscribe to the notion that every person that's ever born on planet earth is God's child. I believe you make a choice in salvation to become God's child, and then we are his children. And so I do think there are some important things for us to learn from this passage. So I'd like to stand and read some verses here. Genesis chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 4. Read down to verse 9, and then we'll jump down to verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the, of the earth when they, were, when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul." And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and is good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Look down at verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God said, or sorry, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Last week, if we dealt with marks of a great father, then this week, I believe we really do see some marks of an ideal child. For our purposes today, I'm calling it trademark Christianity. Trademark Christianity, the marks of a child of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for letting us open it together and look into it today. I pray that you would help us as we look into your word together, that you would help us to see where we fall short. And I pray that you would use it to change us this morning. God, bless the reading of your word in our time together. Help our focus to be on you in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. A trademark is a word or a phrase or a symbol or a design that identifies the source of goods or services. I know you understand a trademark. You might uh, use interchangeably the word logo when you see, or a symbol when you see certain symbols uh, or trademarks. You immediately know what it is and what they do. And so I want to give you some examples of trademarks this morning and I'm, we'll just have the men show you the first one here. Uh, what do you, I mean, tell me, what is this? McDonald's, right. From the time before, well before any of our children could read, they understood what this meant. Sorry, Brother Chad, I didn't have a Zesto logo available. Okay. Um, this McDonald's symbol here, my children knew what it meant. And they thought this was the place to eat. I mean, if not for the Happy Meals, for the, uh, the playground equipment that... Uh, likely never got clean, but we won't talk about that today either. When they saw McDonald's, they knew what it meant. It's a trademark. When you see this, you know what you're getting. For some of you, you don't have a high value on what you get this, with this trademark, but that's beside the point as well. Let's look at another one here. We show you another trademark. This is for Apple, right? And this is, I mean, I'm, some people think this is the sign of the Antichrist, and this is these, these, this, this is bad news here, but, I, but it's very recognizable. It's something that when we see it, we know exactly what it is, the trademark for Apple, and you know what you're getting with Apple because of the trademark. Uh, there's another one here, and this one may be a little controversial. This one is for what? It's for Nike. It's the Nike swoosh, or swoosh, or however you say it. Um, I don't you typically buy Nikes. I don't necessarily love the way they feel but I also don't always love the political stance they take either. So Nike, but you know what it means. You, you understand it. You've seen this, and you understand what it means. There's another one I'm going to show you here, and this is obviously FedEx. Now, we see this everywhere. You drive on the road. If you drive on the interstate, if you're in your neighborhood, these trucks are going everywhere. Now, there is something that I want to point out here. Maybe you've never seen this before, but in the FedEx logo, there's a little hidden trademark within the trademark. And does anybody know what I might be talking about? Okay, there's just a few. Okay, so just a few. So you look there in the FedEx 
trademark. Look between the E and the X at the white space. Do you see what I see? What do you see? It's an arrow. And it's always been there, but most people have never noticed it. It really is a symbol of what FedEx does. It's hidden between the, the E and the X. It's a white arrow. FedEx gets things moving. It's a, it's a great trademark, a great logo that someone uh, spent a lot of time working on. And I've always thought it's a great logo because of, of the hidden part there. Now, as recognizable as those trademarks are, and you can turn that off, Brother Mike, God created mankind to have certain obvious trademarks as well. When, when God put Adam in the Garden of Eden, he wanted Adam to exhibit certain trademarks. He wanted him to exhibit certain things that when you looked at Adam, you knew, okay, that's the mark of a child of God. My question is, uh, what, what do you think of when you think of a Christian trademark? What do you think that a Christian ought to exhibit? What are the markers of a child of God in your mind? What are the markers of a child of God in the world's mind, do you think? Well, do they think, well, they dress a certain way or they act a certain way or they speak a certain way or they simply go to church on Sundays and that makes you a Christian or they don't do this list of things? We all have in our minds the trademarks of a Christian, the trademarks of a child of God, the recognizable traits of a child of God. And, you know, we can assume, sometimes it's hard to define what the most important ones are, but we can assume that they're all present in Adam here in Genesis 2. You say, well, how do we know that? I mean, Adam messed up. But before Adam sinned, then Adam was created in such a way that he was exactly like God wanted him to be. We can look at the end of chapter 1. Look at it. The end of chapter 1, verse 31. It says, And God saw everything that he may, had made, and behold, it was very good. Do you think that includes the man? Absolutely it does. Everything that God created in the Garden of Eden was good. It was very good, including Adam, God's son, Adam. So if this is the way that God desires for human life to be, for humans to be, then what were the trademarks? What are the things that we see here in Adam? The immediately recognizable characteristics of someone who's completely following the Father in every right way. Because all of us, as God's children, if you are a child of God, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you are saved this morning as a child of God, you should have a desire to exhibit the trademarks of a child of God. Our Father deserves followers who reflect Him accurately. And today I want to look at three trademarks. It's a simple outline, but I do think it will help us get back to the basics. Three trademarks of a child of God, you might call them Christian trademarks. Number one, God created man to relate to God. God created man to relate to God. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. Again it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And I don't know how it worked because we know that God's a spirit and he doesn't necessarily have a body according to the Bible. But it says that God breathed directly into the body of Adam so that Adam became a living soul. And Adam was not simply fashioned by God as a body. We talked about last week how God wanted Adam to be more than a body. So he breathed his breath of life into Adam and Adam became animated. He became a person. He was more than just a body. 
God created mankind in his own image. We know that God wanted mankind to reflect him. So he breathed into him this breath of life, and his image was transferred to Adam. His likeness was transferred to Adam. And now Adam is a reflection of God. Look back at chapter 1, verse 26. And this is, uh, this is after God has created, um, created man, and he's giving some in him, him instructions. Chapter 1, verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Look down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply. And then he gives him instructions there. But I want you to think about this. So God created Adam in his own image, his own likeness. And then in verse 28, we see that God blesses them and then God says to them. And I think we skip over that part a lot. We, we just assume, oh, yeah, here's God talking to Adam. But I want you to just to think about what it means. There's communication between God and, and Adam. God didn't just create man as a body and then throw him out into the world and say, okay, go do your thing. No, God created man. He fashioned a man. He breathed into this man the breath of life. And then he said, and I just imagine that he's stooping to do it because God's a great big God in my mind. And he's stooping down to talk to Adam. And he's saying, okay, Adam. He blesses him and he says, Adam, I want you to be fruitful. I don't want you to multiply. And I want you to go do this and I want you to go do that. He's talking to Adam. There's interaction There's communication. There's a relationship here going on. Trademark one is a relationship with the Father. The ideal child of God has a relationship with their creator, their Father. This was not hands-off. God intended that he and Adam would have a fellowshipping, functioning, interactive relationship. Adam was created to relate to God. We, we saw even last week how God came in the garden in the cool of the day to fellowship with mankind. There was an expectation that they were walking together. You know, that's God's plan for mankind. The first trademark for every person is a relationship with God the Father. The ability to communicate, taking the time to communicate. I mean, what a miracle. Not only, I mean, it's a miracle that God could make it possible for us to communicate with him. That's a miracle. But I want you to think about the fact that he didn't just make it possible, but he pursues it, and he wants it, and he desires it. He wants to walk with you. He wants to interact with you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to communicate with you. That's his desire. The holy creator, the supreme being in the entire universe, and he wants a relationship with me? I mean, it blows my mind, and, and you would think that Adam and Eve would have had their minds blown at this as well, but maybe they didn't value it enough, or they didn't see it, because we find then that even though God created them to relate to him, they made a choice to jeopardize the relationship. And we're not going to get into chapter 3 today, but in the very next chapter, Adam and Eve disobey God. And in disobedience, they sin right there in the garden. They had everything they could have asked for. They had everything they could have ever dreamed of, and yet they disobeyed God. And the consequences were severe. Romans 5, 12, it says, it's by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You know, that one choice that Adam made, and Adam and Eve made in the garden, that Adam, the Adam's choice to sin brought death into Adam's life. Now, he didn't die immediately, but spiritually he died. 
And because of that, then every person that's ever been born since then, we are all born with a sin nature, and it causes us to be spiritually dead. And unless something is done to quicken or awaken our spiritual part, then we will be eternally separated from God. Severe consequences for this one decision. And not only that, not only death in the end, but think about this. God is holy, and he can't be in the presence of sin. And so that direct line of communication that Adam and God enjoyed at the very beginning was broken. I mean, if you've ever been on a cell phone and you're driving down the road and suddenly you just drop the call. It's annoying, isn't it? Well, this is far more than annoying. There was a direct line of communication. God was speaking to Adam. They were walking together. They had a relationship of fellowship. And because of Adam's sin, it cut it all off. It dropped the call immediately. But here's the thing. God didn't just look at Adam and say, you're a failure. I'm done with you. No, he actually began to pursue mankind for a relationship again. He wants a relationship with us so bad that he pursued it. And you say, well, how could he? Man sinned, right? But God could do something about it. So you know what he did? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born on this planet, live a perfect holy life, and come and die for the sins of mankind on a cross. Folks, that's how much God wants a relationship with man. That's how much he wants a relationship with you. You can know God. You can walk with God. You can have fellowship with the God of heaven. You can have daily, meaningful interaction with God through his word and through prayer. You can grow through preaching and teaching. You have a copy of God's word and you can open it and you can learn and you can read and he can change you from the inside out. He still makes it possible to relate to him. The most important thing a man can do is know God. If you'll receive his son as your savior, and I happen to believe in in a room like this, there's probably somebody who never has, but if if you will choose to believe that you, if you receive his son as your savior, you can live the life to know him like you've never known anybody else. If you will choose to make that decision, you can have the most fulfilling life that a human being has ever had possible. Jesus said in John 10, I've come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. God loves you so much. He doesn't want you just to live. He doesn't want you just to exist. No, he came so that you could have an abundant, overflowing spiritual life. And it comes when we as creation strive to know him as creator. Paul said, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. He went on to say that I may know him. Friend, you can know him. Knowing him is an abundant life. It's like a full cup. And this is the life that you could live. It's the life he's made available if you would simply strive to know him. And yet most people live a a life with an empty cup. If they do ever receive Jesus Christ as their savior, they live just a small percentage of the life that he makes available. Friend, you can know him. You were created to relate to God. That's the first trademark. And when you say, okay, well, Christians should look like this or do this or Christians should go here or they shouldn't go here. No, get rid of all of that and let's go back to the very basic trademark. And the most basic trademark of any Christian alive is do they relate or have a relationship with God? Friend, do you walk with God? 
Because you can look the part and you can dress up and you can come to church and you could have served in a ministry for years and years and years. But if you do not walk with God, you are abandoning the most basic trademark of being a child of God. Relationship. God's not interested in all the others if we don't have the relationship. Trademark number two, God created man to work for God. So God created man to relate to God. God created man to work for God. Think about the things God told Adam to do. And we won't read them, but we can go back to verse chapter 126. And God told Adam, have dominion over the animals. We could go 27, be fruitful and multiply. In chapter 2, he said, dress and keep the garden. Again, in chapter 2, he said, name all the animals. You know what God was telling Adam? He says, here's the trademark I want from you. Here's what you should do as a child of God. You should be productive for me. You should work. You should produce. You should accomplish something. And so God, through his word, he came and he gave Adam instructions and he gave Adam expectations and Adam just did it. Listen, our work for God begins with knowing and following his instructions. Early on in this series, we talked about how God deals with creation in that he speaks, creation responds, and it's all good. It's blessed. It's rich. That's Adam's life. I mean, as long as Adam simply says, okay, here's God's word, Here's the expectation, I'm going to do it. Then he got to live a really good life. Point, though, is you can't be productive for God if you don't know his instructions. And I really believe in our culture, Christian culture, I truly believe that we are living in a day in which most Christians for themselves don't really know the Bible all that well. Listen, if you want to work for God, that which you were created for, you were created to produce for God, then you better know what God expects of you. You better know God's word. You better get into it, and you better understand it, and you better then say, I'm going to live it. And this sounds, you say, this sounds so basic. I'm not sure why you're dealing with basics, uh, but, but listen, I know myself. And sometimes I get so wrapped up in everything else, and I need to be reminded, no, I need to go back to relating to God and serving working, producing for God. I sometimes get wrapped up in everything else. But listen, if you're a child of God, you should know and obey God's word. His desires should be your desires. His warnings should guide your steps. You should desire to live for him above everything else, and you'll know how to do that by following his word. Think about Adam's contentment here. What did he do? He heard God. He obeyed God. He served God. He was productive for God. And he had great joy and delight in doing it. You know what we see here is Adam is living the best life possible. Because he knows God's word. And he follows God's word. And he's productive for God. And I just have to say this. If our best life is when we live for God and work for God and produce for God according to his word why aren't we more serious about his word? If this is our best life, listen, I'm not standing up here saying, I'm not Joel Osteen this morning. Your best life now. I don't have the hair for that, okay? But what Joel Osteen says is your best life, he's talking about wealth. He's talking about success. 
He's talking about money. He's talking about possessions. He's talking about a life of ease. And, and I'm sorry if, if I belittle, I didn't mean to belittle him. But, when I, but he has a perspective that's wrong. Because in, God, in God's mind, the best life that you will ever live is to know God's word and obey God's word and be productive for God. And that is apart from wealth. That's apart from your bank account. It's apart from a new house or a new car that's completely separated from any of those things that has nothing to do with the happiness of mankind. The most fulfilled life that you will ever have is to know God's word, obey God's word, and be productive for God. And if that's our best life, then why aren't we opening his word every chance we get? Why aren't we memorizing it? Why does it take so much for us to meditate on God's word? Why aren't we more engaged when it's being preached or taught? If our best life takes place when we obey God's word, why are we spending more energy making sure, uh, why aren't we spending more energy making sure we live it? See, if our best life is spent serving God, why aren't more of God's people involved in serving God? You know, if that's our best life and that's a productive, happy, joyful, fulfilled life, there should never be a time where someone has to stand at a pulpit like this and say, we really need workers. We really need help. We really need people to come and be willing to help us in this regard. We need somebody to come and help us. Now listen, if God's people would understand trademark number two, that working for God is a basic in every child of God, we'd never run out of volunteers around here. If this helps us live our most productive life and brings us the most joy and delight, why aren't we more passionate about knowing it and living it? Ephesians 2.9 says we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You realize your purpose for being saved is to produce for God. To show his work in you. To produce fruit for God. Now, I want, I want to make sure that we understand that. You say, well, you know, I'm working because I want to be saved. No, that passage very clearly says that's not the way it works. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So it's not like works don't have any part in the process, but you get, see, right here, a lot of people are working and they're trying to get saved, and they're just putting all the effort and energy they can into salvation, but they never get there. Uh, and you can't be saved with your works. It's only by grace. Well, see, but once we get saved, then God gives us the capacity to work for him. And now, once we've been saved, we have the enabling of God to do work for God. That's our purpose. We're supposed to be productive. Don't let anybody tell you that is, since it's all of grace, then there doesn't have to be any evidence in your life. No, there should be evidence in your life. There should be works. There should be fruit. There should be production. And you know what? You should desire it. You should say, God's done so much for me, the least I can do is get to work. Just this week, somebody's sitting in my office. And we were talking about some things, and you know, he, they said, I'm tired of just sitting in a pew. I don't think that's what God wants for me. You know, and in my heart, I'm saying, amen, bless God. Because there shouldn't be anybody at Eastside Baptist Church that's content with simply sitting in the pew. And I'm not talking about for Eastside Baptist Church's sake. 
I'm talking based on the fact that God sent his son to die on a cross for you and gave you the hope of eternal life. The least that we can do is give him everything that we have and say, whatever he wants, I'm going to do it. Whatever I can get involved in, I'm going to get involved in because he saved me. And now, man, good works are going to come. I said to him in the office, I said, here's a long list of things that need to be done. Let's get to work. So man was created to relate to God. Man was created to work for God. And then the third thing we see, the third trademark, is that God created man to answer to God. Man was created to answer to God. Look at chapter 2, verse 16 again. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. You know, God did not put man in the garden and say, okay, listen, you just go do what you want to do. You did, it's not like um, Adam was stranded on a desert island, just him and palm trees and coconuts, and he's just going to live a good life there laying around on the beach. I mean, some, that sounds like not a bad vacation, doesn't it? But that's not what Adam was doing. No, he wasn't, he wasn't there without rules or regulations. No, God gave him instructions. God gave him not just instructions, God gave him boundaries. And Adam was expected to submit to God's plans for him. Think about the tree in the garden. I just want you to think about the tree. This tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a lot of people say, well, why would he even put it there? It just doesn't even make sense. Everything could have been great. Well, I think he put it there for a couple of reasons. First, so that man would choose God. I want you to think about that. If, if God had placed Adam in the garden and there was no chance for Adam to mess up or sin, then Adam was just a robot forced to choose God. But by putting the tree, the, the knowledge of the good and evil in the garden, he was putting Adam in a position that Adam would have to look at the tree and say no to the tree and say yes to God. Which means that God doesn't want robot Christians. God doesn't want Christians, my mic's cutting out here, God does not want Christians that simply just you know, go through the motions. He wants a, 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 he wants a young he wants a child of his to have a heart for God. He wants a child of his to choose God out of love. I think that's the first reason God put the tree in the Garden of Eden. But I think the second reason is this. He put the forbidden tree in the garden to remind Adam that he answered to somebody. He put that tree in the garden as a reminder. No, listen, you answer to somebody. This is a reminder that you answer to me, it was a reminder that, that Adam was accountable to somebody. You know, I've done that with my children before. I don't want to tell myself too much, but I believe, according to the Bible, you know, it, it done reasonably and done, done in the right way that, that physical discipline of our children is, is helpful for them. I'm not talking about abuse, but the Bible does talk about the rod. And we, when our kids were young, uh, we, would, we, we started, we would buy these uh, plumbing elements. They're little, they're little pieces of plastic about this long with little, little flexibility to them. And you know when I wanted to remind my children to behave, I would take it and I would put it on the counter sometimes. You know what? Not as a threat, but as a reminder that they answer to somebody. You know what? Usually it worked too. Because when we have a reminder that we're accountable, it affects what we do. And Adam could stroll through the garden every day and he's eating the fruit and he's enjoying life and he'd walk by and he's like, oh, there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it would remind him that God was watching him. 
that he's not his own authority, that he doesn't call the shots, that he's at the mercy of somebody else. And in the end, folks, and this gets real serious, I want you to pay attention here. In the end, we will answer to God for the decisions we make based on his revelation of himself to us. We will answer to him. We will stand before God. And if you're saved, then you're going to stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and you will answer for your works. You will answer for how you lived or did not live for God. And this is an important one. But if you're unsaved, then you will stand before God at the great white throne judgment as told in the book of Revelation chapter 20. There's a great white throne and the dead, both small and great, will stand before God. And if your name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, the Bible says that you will forever be separated from God in a place, in a lake of fire. And I just want to mention that today because we've got, a, in our culture, we've got a lot of people that think they can do whatever they want and they don't answer to anybody right now. But whether or not you answer to the law or whether or not you ever stand before an earthly judge, you will one day stand before a heavenly judge and you will have to answer for your life, folks. And I'm saying it passionately because I don't want you to stand there unprepared. It's the most important moment that you will ever have in your life. The point is this, one day you will stand by yourself before God and nobody will intervene. Nobody will speak up on your behalf. Nobody else will have an answer for you. You will be judged on your own merits alone. And if you're saved, you'll be judged by your works. 1 Corinthians 3 says that you'll be judged by your works what sort they are. And if your works were done for God with the right motivation and love, they'll be put in a fire. And if they survive the fire, then you have reward to give to God. But if in your life you're just saved, but you didn't really do anything for God with the right motive, then your works were burned up and all you get is that you get to go to heaven. Saved so as by fire. But if you're not saved, folks, and I want you to be serious, listen here. If you're not saved, you'll be judged for your own sins. See, those that are saved, Jesus Christ, our sins were judged on the cross and Jesus Christ paid for them. But an unsaved person will have to pay for their own sins. If you die for, before salvation, your name will not be in the book of life. Listen, you will die for your own sins that day. Each of us needs to live thinking about and preparing for that moment. And I just have to say, as your pastor, the most important thing I can do is prepare you for the judgment seat of Christ. I will not have done my job if I simply just let you do whatever you're doing and not thinking about, you know, sin or not thinking about what to preach and not thinking about how to help you. And I'm not saying I have all the answers, but God has tasked me with the responsibility. And let me say it's a weighty responsibility, but I'm here to help you prepare for the judgment seat of Christ. To help you prepare for the moment when you stand before God by yourself and you have to answer to him for your life. It's a weighty, weighty responsibility. But I hope that you'll see this morning that this preaching is not for show. It's because I have a heart that the people of Eastside Baptist Church are ready for their appointment. And you stand there with an answer. And for those in here that aren't saved, you will, if you die without salvation, you'll stand before God and you'll have to pay for your own sins. Each of us needs to live thinking about and preparing for that moment. 
It's the moment we're all preparing for. And that is trademark number three, is that we're accountable to God. God created man to answer to God. You have accountability to God, and you say, well, no, he hasn't seen everything I've done. He knows everything you've ever done. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent, and he knows what you've done. He knows your sin. You can't sneak in. You can't sneak around the gates. You can't trick your way into it. You can't put on somebody else's coat and pretend to get in by being them. No, God knows who you are, and he knows what you've done. But the great thing about it is he's done something for you. He sent his son to die on the cross, and if you will but accept his payment for your sins, then when you stand before God, you have full confidence that your sins have been judged already. Trademark number three is accountability to God. And you may think right now that you call, you call the shots in your life, that you're in control, but someday you'll find out you don't. You're not. There's a God and you will answer to him. Live your life that way. It's, trade, it's a trademark of somebody who follows God. They live in preparation for that day. Folks, those are the three trademarks. That a child of God relates to God, a child of God works for God, and a child of God answers to God. That's why we were created. And these three markers should be present in every person who claims to be a follower of the Father. But I want to think about, just take a step back and think about how they're all connected. Listen, we are created to relate to God. And I'm going to say, right here is created to relate to God. Right here is we're created to work for God. And over here is we're created to answer to God. We're created to relate to God, but some people skip step number one. And they say, yes, I know I'm supposed to have a relationship with God, but they skip the relationship and they go straight to working for God. I've done it myself plenty of times where I skip the relationship, but at least I'm active, at least I'm busy. And we get to be where we're all action and we're all motions and we're all works, but there's no heart behind it. This, see, if you're here and you have, say, well, yes, I'm working for God, I just don't have a relationship with God, that would be like Adam. When God came and gave Adam his instructions, Adam goes about his business and he's working and he's having dominion and he's naming animals and he's dressing and keeping the garden. But when the cool of the day rolls around and God comes into the garden to fellowship with Adam, Adam's nowhere to be found. He's all work and no relationship. Folks, does that describe you? I believe it describes many Christians. They're all work, but no relationship. And yet Matthew 22 says that we should love God. The first commandment with promise is that we love God with all our heart and soul and mind. Listen, you are an empty shell if all you're doing is working for God and there's no relationship behind it. You know what the Bible calls it? It calls it hypocrisy. That's what the Pharisees got in trouble for the most. Because they were working for God without a heart for God. Folks, we better be careful that we don't work for God and not walk with God. If that describes you when you answer to God, then you're going to be ashamed. Don't be all work and no relationship. Some people, they begin a relationship with God and they relate to God and they're even saved and and things start out really good, but for some reason or another, they never take the next step to begin working. They never take the next step to be productive for God. They, they, kind of, they relate to God, but they never get busy. They never get to work, as you might say. And so what happens in 1 Corinthians 3, it says they're saved so as by fire, 
meaning that yes, they're saved and yes, they get into heaven, but when it comes time for them to send their works through the fire, they've got nothing to give to God as a gift. No rewards. Eternally, spiritually speaking, they've got nothing of value to give to God. Are they saved? Yes. But they were never productive in the work. That would be like this. That would be like Adam. God creates him. God puts him in the garden and says, okay, here's the list of things I want you to do. And Adam's like, Psh, I'm not doing that. So he goes and finds a big, nice, cool tree and he builds a hammock and he lays in the hammock and God comes to see what kind of production he's had for the day. He's like, oh man, this is too perfect out here. I'm not really going to get to work. He said, I would never do that, and yet Christians do it all the time. We enjoy the benefits of salvation, but we never contribute to advancing the kingdom once we get it. And God wants you not just to walk with him. He wants you to work for him. Listen, the moment that you answer then over here is God's greatest climax for your life. But if you skipped the walk and you skipped the work, when you stand here, you're going to be ashamed. If you skipped the walk, but you got to work, at least I was busy. God says, no, the Pharisees were busy. If you skipped the work, but you were at least, hey, I walked, I had a relationship. Well, God says, but where are the rewards? What do you have to bring me? Listen, if you want the best ending, then your start and your middle, you've got to say, listen, I want that to be as good as I can. My walk and my work, because I, I want a good answer when I stand before God. You know, we see Adam in chapter 3, and we're not going to look at it today, but he had to stand before God much sooner than he thought he would. And his problem was that he ignored what God had asked him to do. You might could say he ignored the work. Part of his task was don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because he ignored the work, it affected his walk. His relationship with God was broken. And then when God came over here to have him answer to him, Adam hung his head in shame. And the last thing I want for any of us is to be ashamed at his appearing because we ignored the trademarks. We ignored the walk, we ignored the work, and we ignored the fact that someday we'll stand before him. And you say, I don't have a relationship. I've never been saved. Okay, the tree in the garden, listen, listen, this is important. The tree in the garden was a reminder to Adam and Eve that they weren't in charge. They had to answer to God. But there's another tree. And this tree is called the cross. And it's a reminder that you have no answer for your sins, but God does. And his answer is Jesus Christ. Amen. And you say, man, the word burden of your sin is weighing you down even right now. And I'm thinking about folks even in this room, and I don't know if they're saved or not, but the burden of your sin is weighing you down, and you're just constantly reminded of your sin. Well, let me just tell you, the cross is a constant reminder of grace. He died for your sins so that you don't have to. The tree in the garden is a reminder of our sin, but the tree on Calvary is a reminder that we have a Savior who paid for them. And if you will, by faith this morning, receive his payment for your sins, you can be saved today. Christian, you say, I just don't have a relationship. I don't have a walk. Well, why choose to live an empty life when you have an abundant life available? 
Make your daily interaction and communion with God your life's top priority. You say, I will do nothing else as passionately as I spend time in God's word, as I spend time in prayer. Listen, I, you may go make a bunch of money and you may have a nice house and you may have all the vacations you've ever dreamed about and be successful in the world's eyes, but if you live an empty spiritual life, when you stand before God, it's going to be shame. Spend time every day walking with and relating to God. You're made for that, created for it. And you might say, well, I'm, a, I'm not working for God. I'm a Christian, but listen, there's so many ways to serve in a local church. There's so many areas to get involved in. We just need some Christians who decide the work, that work for God is a priority. Don't be content, as the, as the person in my office this week said, I'm not content sitting in a pew anymore. And you say, well, I can't work this situation or that. Okay, then pray for the work. You know, you can do more that contributes to the, to your, the work on your knees than we probably can and with activity. And if you'll just take care of your relationship and the work and live as though you answer to God because you do, then when you stand before him, it'll be a moment of joy, not shame. But if you skip a trademark... The basics for every Christian, it will be shame. Your treatment of your relationship and your treatment of the work and your accountability to God will make the difference. You know, I was thinking about the FedEx logo. It's a good trademark. It really is. But it's only just a good trademark until you see the arrow. But when you see that arrow, it becomes a great trademark. If you're missing any of the basics... You can live a decent life. But if you'll embrace every trademark from Genesis 2, you can live a great life. Don't settle for just being a partial trademark. Choose to say, all the most basics, I'm going to live my life, in my life, and I'm going to exhibit them to the world. Because that's what God deserves, and that's what the world needs right now. Christians who bear all the trademarks. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed today. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.